So let me introduce our first theme. I remind you that Teachings and Doctrines of the Book of Mormon is not Book of Mormon where we go 1st Nephi, 2nd Nephi, Jacob, all the way to Moroni. We have the freedom and we're going to study the Book of Mormon topically. So we're going to take a topic and find all throughout the book where we, well, how we can piece that thing together. It's a very different way to study the scriptures, and I would encourage you to really watch what, don't get caught up in what we're doing, that you don't pause and see the way we're doing it. Because to study the Book of Mormon topically, could, you could spend the rest of your life doing this. And there's so many topics to explore. And when you put the whole piece together, you see the topic better. So allow me to introduce our very first topic. Our very first theme that we're going to go through the Book of Mormon in the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon. Turn to 1st Nephi chapter 1. I believe that chapter is so symbolic. And I want you to see the symbolism. So 1st Nephi chapter 1, Lehi has a vision. And in his vision, tell me what happens. Verse 11. 1st Nephi chapter 1 verse 11. Tell me what happens in his vision. Amanda? Um, uh, he sees a vision of Jesus and his okay. apostles. Okay, so he's led by the Savior. He see, he's, he, he's got some divine teachers. And then in verse 11, he's handed a book. Do you see the symbolism? This is 1st Nephi chapter 1. It's like we are being handed a book. You see the parallel imagery? Lehi is handed a book and told to read it. And what, if you're opening up to 1 Nephi chapter 1, what's the invitation? Take this book and read it. You see the parallel imagery? You see the symbolism here? Now, I believe verse 12 is a promise to you. If you will read the Book of Mormon, tell me what happens when he reads his book. He's filled with the Spirit. That is the invitation from the very beginning. If you find yourself discouraged, if you found yourself lost, if you find the darkness and the clouds are rolling in, just begin a habit of reading the Book of Mormon. From the very first chapter, it says, if you'll read this book, you'll be filled with the Spirit. And it is my testimony that that is true. Take the book you've been handed, read it, and you'll be filled with the Spirit. Now, he gives us three look fors. What Lehi finds in his book is a look for in our book. Tell me what's the first thing Lehi finds in his book. Verse 13, Lehi reads in his book, warnings of destruction. In his specific case, it was a warning that Jerusalem would be destroyed. And if you don't leave town, you're going to die. Tell me what you should expect to find in our book. What's the symbolism here? You're going to find from page one to the very last page, a book full of warnings to prevent your destruction. So look for the warnings in the Book of Mormon. Can you think of a specific warning in the Book of Mormon? Let me give you one of my absolute favorites. The Book of Mormon teaches how Satan sneaks into our life. Amalekiah is a symbol of Satan. Do you remember when Lahontai is on top of a mountain? 
and he sent to surround the mountain. Now, invitation number one is come down to the bottom of the mountain. How much success would Satan have gaining you to go all the way to transgression, all the way to the bottom of the mountain? It usually doesn't work with people on the top of the mountain, does it? So tell me what Lahontai does. Sorry, tell me what Amalekiah does. He goes up nearly to the top. Now what's the next invitation? You don't have to come all the way down. Just come down a little bit and bring your guards. One of the biggest warnings that the Book of Mormon has given me is that Satan's tactic is not to come all the way down in one fell swoop. His tactic is to get you to come down a little bit and make you feel safe. If he can make you feel safe in just coming down a little, he's opened the door. Anyone know the phrase that describes how Lahontai died? Poisoned by degrees. There's the warning. That's how Satan does it. Poisoned by degrees, by getting you to come down just a little bit and to make you feel safe. There's nothing wrong with this. You're okay. And if you come down one step, what's next? One more step. Boy, one of the biggest warnings the Book of Mormon will ever give you. We'll talk more about that one. But the book is full of warnings. Now, what else does Lehi find in his book? Verse 14. Tell me what Lehi finds in his book. And what are you going to find in our book? Great and marvelous things. Is the Book of Mormon filled with, have you discovered that the Book of Mormon is filled with great and marvelous things? To the point where he just starts to rejoice. Sometimes I read the book and just sing out praises to God. How much I love this book. I love that he continues down here in verse 15. His soul did rejoice and his whole heart was, was filled. That's what you need to find in the Book of Mormon. Great and marvelous things that fill your heart. Hopefully we do one of those today. I hope every single day that we meet is a warning that will prevent destruction and a great and marvelous thing that will fill your heart. And because God is great and God is marvelous, what does Lehi know? And this becomes one of the major themes of the Book of Mormon. What does Lehi testify? That people who come unto God will not perish. perish. In fact, let's read the last verse of chapter one. Nephi picks that up. This is Lehi. Nephi picks it up. And what does he, how does he end the very first chapter of the Book of Mormon? A testimony that the tender mercies of the Lord are upon all those who he has chosen because of their faith to make them Mighty even unto deliverance. Now, if you've studied the Book of Mormon, you know that there aren't a whole lot of miracles in it. And that's not true. There's one miracle repeated many times. What is the miracle of the Book of Mormon? Preservation. It's Nephi before his brethren. Touch me not! It's Abinadi before the priests. It's Samuel on the wall. It's the stripling warriors. What is the miracle of the Book of Mormon? 
that if you come unto Christ, you will be preserved. His way, in His time, that you will be preserved. You will find great and marvelous things in this book. And I hope what you find in this book will cause your soul to rejoice and your heart to be filled. Now, Lehi finds one more. The book is inviting us to look for warnings, great and marvelous things, and there's one more. What did Lehi's book make clear? Lehi read a book that made what clear? The coming of a Messiah to redeem the world. So what is the greatest thing you're going to, the greatest great and marvelous, marvelous thing that you're going to find in the Book of Mormon? Of all the things to look for, what should you most look for? The Messiah. And how to claim salvation in the Messiah. So of all the things we should study, what should we start with? We should find Jesus in the Book of Mormon. Now, we talked about last week, in the invitation that we talked to, do you remember how Nephi saw that the Bible would lose plain and precious truths? Go back to that chapter. Turn back to 1 Nephi chapter 13. What did Nephi specifically see that the Book of Mormon would restore? When he saw the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in verse 40, he saw that the Book of Mormon would do three things. In our day... The Book of Mormon does three things. Number one, it will establish the truth of the first. It's not that we know the Book of Mormon. Our position isn't, well, the Book of Mormon's true because it's like the Bible. Our position is the Bible's true because it's like the Book of Mormon. And the portions in the Bible that are most like the Book of Mormon are most true. He gave us the standard to compare everything to, and it's the Book of Mormon. Number two, what else is the book going to do in our day? Make known the plain and precious things that have been lost. And then specifically, what's the most important plain and precious thing that has been lost that the Book of Mormon is going to restore? Who he is, what he does, and how to take advantage of it. So our first theme is to take a look at what does the Book of Mormon contribute to our understanding of Christ? What would we not know about Him if we didn't have the Book of Mormon? Can I throw that out there just for your thoughts? Before we even jump into it, what would you not know about Christ if all you had was the Bible? Now, I love the Bible. Don't get me wrong. I love the Bible. But there is not a whole lot that clarifies what he did. The greatest truth lost in the Bible and the need for the restoration is it lost the identity of the Father and the identity of the Son. I have taught the doctrine, I have taught the New Testament many times where I taught the events of the atonement. But guess what I've never been able to teach in the New Testament? The doctrine of the atonement. If you want to understand what Jesus accomplished, 
You don't turn to the writings of Paul. You don't turn to the Gospels. Guess where you turn? You turn to the Book of Mormon. So let's lay out in the next several classes what is it that we know about Christ because of the Book of Mormon. Any thoughts before we jump in? Tell me what you know about Christ because of the Book of Mormon. It's okay to not speak. That means we're going to have some, a few great weeks because we're really going to digest. Now, just as a side note, I've watched people leave the church and they don't know where to go. When people leave the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what church do they join? Tell, raise your hand if you love someone who's left the church. What church did they join? 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 Now, I've, that fascinates me. Why aren't they joining churches? And what do you think the answer is? There's nothing out there that compares to what they're walking away from. No one understands Jesus like we've come to just take advantage of it. And when you walk away from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, people don't realize how much of Jesus you're going to have to walk away from. And that's why they're not finding anything out there. And so they just walk away from religion in general. That's, I believe, in part because of what we know about Christ because of the Book of Mormon. All right, you see where we're going to go for the next couple of weeks? Amanda, what were you going to say? I mean, maybe this is a little bit shot in the dark, but I feel like I know something more about the Savior from the Book of Mormon that like, isn't talked about in the Bible is He loves all of His children. Yes. So in, the, in the Bible, it talks, it's very focused on the Jews and the Israelites. Oh, and the Gentiles later on after Christ did. Yeah. But here in the Book of Mormon, it talks about he visits all of his children on these different continents, and they all believe in him. He's all beautiful. Beautiful. We're going to talk about that. We're going to watch that happen. Remember when he calls the Gentile woman a dog? You know, that the dogs eat from the scraps that fall from the table. And I don't know that that's a good translation. I really believe the translation is not correct. But that is not the Messiah we know in the Book of Mormon, is it? And that's, uh, that's the, his one-on-oneness. Remember in 3 Nephi, we are peers, and everyone comes one by one. That's a very different Jesus than you're going to find in the New Testament. Tell me your name. Callie. Callie mm-hmm. with an A. Callie. Yes. Um, what, what I think is something that I've learned a lot from the Book of Mormon is just who Christ is. It shows him in a different light. Because in the Bible, I'm like, Whoa, this guy, he's pretty intense. And then, like, yeah, there you read of miracles, but it's like a different light of Jesus Christ. You got it. In the Book of Mormon, it's, it's loving, it's merciful, it's, it's seeing his true acts and kind of seeing it from multiple perspectives. Yep. That's exactly what I want to shine a light on. I love that expression. We're going to shine a light on the Jesus we get to know in the pages of the Book of Mormon. I want you to walk away over from the next couple of weeks really being able to say, all of this we know because of the Book of Mormon. And if I'm going to walk away from the Book of Mormon, I'm going to have to give up that knowledge of Christ because you're not going to find it elsewhere. 
So let's start with what did he do? If you talk to a Christian, will they know that Jesus did something special? Well, they'll appreciate it, right? And they know that he suffered and somehow it saves them. But will they be able to explain how his suffering saves them? In my experience, they cannot make that connection. They don't know what he did. They know he did something that saves us. Somehow his suffering saves us. But it is the Book of Mormon that clarifies exactly how that happens. So turn with me to 2 Nephi. We're going to start in 2 Nephi chapter 2, where Lehi explains the plan of salvation to his son Jacob. It's a beautiful explanation about agency and how we agency is absolutely essential in order for us to be saved. And then, ah, sorry. And then we find this beautiful phrase in verse 6. His summary is, redemption cometh in and through the Holy Messiah, for he is full of grace and truth. Now watch what the word to does. This word to is missing from the doctrine in the Bible. He offereth himself a sacrifice for sin. Does the Bible teach that? That Jesus offered himself a sacrifice for sin. But what, is he, what does the Book of Mormon now do? In order to accomplish this, this is what his suffering does. So tell me why we need him to suffer for me to be saved. That boggles a lot of people's minds. They struggle with a martyr. They struggle with him having to die so that I live. They can't make that connection. And here the Book of Mormon is about to spell it out in very clear language. He offers himself a sacrifice for sin to do what? To answer the ends of the law. In other words, our Heavenly Father obeys law. If a law is broken, there must be a payment to the law. God can't, he can't skip that. Our Heavenly Father obeys law. And either we pay that penalty or Jesus answers the ends of the law. And I love that it's repeated unto those, all those who have a broken heart and a contrite spirit and unto none else can the ends of the law be answered. That's twice he's emphasizing that his atonement answers the ends of the law. Now let's just pause. Tell me what you know about answering the law. How do you and I answer the law? The law posts a speed limit right there. How do I answer the law? I obey. I follow. I answer the law by obedience to it. So that alone tells me, tells what makes him the Messiah. He has to do what? Obey. How much law? Every aspect of the law. He has to obey every single aspect of the law. He has to be higher and greater than the law. That alone should cause us to understand how great he is and exactly what he accomplished. He has to answer. Now, why the emphasis on the ends of the law? 
Now, throughout the Book of Mormon, you're going to be amazed at how many times we add one simple word, every, not every time, many times in the Book of Mormon when we speak of an atonement, we add one fascinating word. Nephi does it. Jacob will do it. Um, Alma will do it. He speaks of the atonement, and what's the word we add? Infinite. I have not found anywhere in the Bible that suggests his, in, his atonement was infinite. But repeatedly in the Book of Mormon, we know his atonement is infinite. Tell me about infinity. If the ends of the law are all the way out to infinity, tell me about infinity. So it goes to the beginning of everything. To like... You can't even say end, can you? Because there is no end. Imagine the largest number. One time, my, I have, my kids are fascinated with numbers. I've always loved numbers. But one time when my oldest, he's 26 right now, but when he was a kid, he was fascinated with numbers. And you know how we name numbers, million, billion, trillion, quadrillion. He, he thought that infinity was the name of a number. So he handed me a pad of paper and a pen, and he said, Dad, show me infinity. He wanted me to write the number infinity. Imagine if I had filled that entire page with numbers. Is that close to infinity? In fact, what does that number round to? Zero. If I were to fill every notebook in this planet with numbers and divide by infinity, what does it round to? If I were to amass the greatest supercomputers on earth into one machine, have it tabulate the largest number it could calculate and divide by infinity, what does that round to? Zero. We teach a false doctrine, and that is that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. How is that a false doctrine? The sum of all of our sins divided by infinity rounds to zero. Jesus has to pay what? An infinite penalty. I don't comprehend that. How? If, if he paid an infinite penalty, isn't he still paying it? How long will he pay it for infinity? I don't understand how that works. But I know he has to answer the ends of the law out how far? Infinite level. So how obedient does he have to be? That's astounding to me. Especially, do you remember this verse? There's a fascinating verse in King Benjamin's address where he says, oh, come on, don't jump there. There's this fascinating verse in Mosiah chapter 4 where he says at the very end, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye may commit sin. For there are many diverse ways and there are means, even so many that I can't number them. So how many sins are there? And Jesus has to obey how much of the law? That's astounding. And we need to pause and understand what he accomplished. Every thought, Every desire, every word, every attitude 
was in perfect harmony with the law. Otherwise, can he atone? He can't. He has to answer the ends of the law. That's astounding. Now, tell me how else you answer the law. If you don't obey the speed limit, how do you answer the law? You pay the penalty. Jesus has to live in 100% obedience to the law and be punished as if he did what? Obey or broke every possible commandment. He has to be punished as if he violated infinite laws. He has to answer the ends of the law. So what does the law require? What does the law require for sin? If I die and I never repent, if I stand before judgment day and I never repented, what does the law require me to pay in that day? What is the penalty for sin? Justice. Good, but what is justice demand? What is the payment that the law will require? Again, Book of Mormon is going to give us two. I have found two in the Book of Mormon. Maybe you can find some others, but I have found two penalties that the law demands. And this is what he's going to have to take. How far? To an infinite level. So turn to Mosiah chapter 2, King Benjamin's address. Mosiah chapter 2, starting in verse 38. Mosiah 2, 38. Would you read that verse and tell me what is one thing that the demands of justice have upon you if there were no atonement. Mosiah 2, 38. Let's read it together. Therefore, if that man repenteth not and remaineth and dieth an enemy to God, the demands of divine justice do awaken his immortal soul to a lively sense of his own guilt. Now, this isn't, I told a lie and I feel guilty about it. This is a payment in the afterlife you will have to make if you do not repent. Now, what is one man's guilt going to do? Let's read the rest of this. One man's payment of guilt will do what? Anyone want to read the rest of this verse? Please. And to fill his breast with guilt and pain and anguish, which is like an unquenchable fire, whose flame ascendeth up forever. That's one man's guilt. It will cause that person to shrink. Now, flip over to chapter 3, verse 25. Let's read one more. One man's guilt. Justice will demand in the end, not right now. Justice will demand in the end if you will not repent that what? Someone read this one. Please, 325, Mosiah 325. And if they be evil, they are consigned to an awful view of their own guilt and abomination. Which is going to do what? <clears throat> one man's guilt is going to do what? Which doth cause them to shrink from the presence of the Lord into a state of misery and endless torment, from whence they can not no more return. Therefore, they have drunk damnation to themselves. Now, can you imagine if that's one person's guilt, 
What is that like at an infinite level? If one man's guilt is that crushing that you shrink, what is infinite guilt? Can you imagine what he had to pay? Now, if this is what justice demands, I don't want to spend our time feeling sorry for him or dwelling on what he paid. What I'd like to focus on is what he bought. What does infinitely paying the penalty to justice by you. If he took guilt to an infinite level, what did he buy? If this is the payment, what's the purchase? What's the purchase? How though? How does he purchase us with that payment? By giving us grace. Okay. So let's, to, let's turn to the Book of Mormon, perhaps one of the greatest contributions of the Book of Mormon. Turn to Moroni chapter 7. You nailed it. He bought something that now saves us. Moroni chapter 7, verse 27. Boy, how the world would be different if the Bible taught this concept. Moroni 7, that great chapter where Mormon is writing to his son Moroni about faith, hope, and charity. And he gives us verse 27. Someone else read. Sorry, tell me your name. I'm Caden. Caden, Caden, read this. Mormon, sorry, Moroni, not Mormon. Let me get there. Moroni 7, 27, please. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, have miracles ceased because Christ hath ascended into heaven and hath sat down on the right hand of God. Okay, now I'm going to pause on Here's where the drum roll goes. This is where the music, I just need the effect, right? This is the crescendo of the music. Jesus paid that so he could walk into the Father's presence and do what? Finish that. Proclaim of the Father his right of mercy which he hath upon the children of the That is one of the most beautiful expressions I can find in Scripture. Jesus claimed... He claimed his rights of mercy. Tell me what your head says when I say that. He claimed his rights of mercy. What's the thought process in your head that says, okay, I get that he answered the ends of the law in a payment so that he could claim rights of mercy. Isn't that a beautiful expression? Tell me what it means to you. So, rights of mercy, that makes me think of he, he did the most merciful act, the greatest merciful act um, ever known to man. So, technically, he is now uh, in, entitled to all that has done. Isn't that a beautiful expression? He has rights of mercy. Tell me how, we else, how else would we use that phrase? I have rights. I have rights, and he has rights of mercy. James. Well, I was just thinking about it, and it's, it's the ability to grant. Yeah. It's that, like, you know, if I think, if, like, it's, it's what you're able to give. It's like, what is yours? And so I think rights of mercy is to come in and intercede for us with, like 
having committed sin, he can come and say, hey, no matter what it is, I'll cover it. Like, it's that full encompassing power of the atonement to then just like cover all of us. That's such a beautiful thought, isn't it? Do you remember being a kid and your mom gave a really cool treat to like a younger brother and sister? And what did you say? That's not fair. Justice is constantly crying out. That's not fair. You're being too nice to them. Can justice complain? Because why? He has the rights of mercy. Now look at the beauty of the Book of Mormon. What does Mormon... Almost a thousand years after Lehi, what does he connect the rights of mercy to? In the very next verse, where did he get the rights of mercy? By doing what? Answering the ends of the law. No way Joseph Smith wrote this book. There's no way he wrote that phrase in 2 Nephi chapter 2 and remembered that phrase hundreds of pages later and threw it in here. But do you see the connection? Jesus claims the rights of mercy because he answered the ends of the law. Now, if we were gonna, if we're gonna extend this to infinite, what was the penalty? Infinite guilt. What's the purchase? Infinite mercy. Now, when I speak of infinity, let's do two aspects of infinity. Let's do breadth and depth. To how many people can Jesus extend mercy? Is there someone he can't reach? Oh my gosh, leave me alone. Is there anyone outside of his reach? Does he have a quota and a limit? Is there anyone he can't save? All right, let's do depth. How deep can his atonement reach? How far down could he save someone? Do you understand? And he bought that right. Therefore, how does he feel when I believe he can't save me? After what I've done, he can't save me. I've heard students say that to me. After what I've done, he can't save me. How does he feel about that statement? If it were me, I would be deeply offended based on what I paid for that right. You can never say you're out of his reach. Now I'm gonna ask a very difficult question. I'm not foreshadowing. I'm just simply talking about his rights of mercy. Could he, not will he, not should he, could he forgive Lucifer? Could he? The answer has to be what? Of course he can. Now, will he? Why not? The limitation is not on the atonement side. The limitation is on his side. Will Satan repent? He won't. But could Jesus forgive him? Yes. Do you see the depth? Just a couple phrases that I absolutely love. I love this one in, Mos- in Alma 24. Go to Alma chapter 24, verse 11. What do the anti-Nephi-Lehi's call themselves? Alma 24, 11. What do they call themselves? The most lost. Can Jesus save the most lost? You bet he can. 
He bought the right. And no one can argue with him, can he? No one can argue with Christ. Whoever he chooses to save, he can save. And he bought that right. What, do, what does the Book of Mormon call Ammon, Aaron, Omner, Himni, and Alma? The very vilest of sinners. Can his atonement save the very vilest of sinners? So there's one way he answers the ends of the law. Let's do another one. So one payment to, to the law is guilt. Let's talk about what the Book of Mormon teaches is another thing that the law requires when we sin. Let's go back to Mosiah chapter 2, where we read the first one. Let's go back a few verses to verse 36. Mosiah 2, 36. Tell me, and we all unfortunately can testify of this. What does the law require when we transgress? I love the language here, right? It's not that he has to withdraw. It's that you have to withdraw. The law requires that you withdraw yourselves from the Spirit of the Lord. He cannot dwell in unclean tabernacles. It's against the rules. Therefore, the moment you choose to be unclean, what does the law demand? That you do what? Separate. So if the penalty for law is the loss of the Spirit. What does Jesus have to pay? What is the loss of the Spirit taken to an infinite level? He was kicked out of his Father's presence. He was banished to the darkest abyss. How much light was in that abyss? Infinitely zero light. Had he ever experienced that? Had Jesus ever been without the Father's presence? And how much did he have to lose it? I can't even comprehend that. I think this one hurt more than this one. To be abandoned infinitely by his Father. He was infinitely alone. When do we think this culminated? There's a moment on the cross where we think this culminated because what does he say? He stands up on the nails and says, why hast thou forsaken me? He was completely cut off from God in every aspect. Now, again, I don't want to dwell on his, his pain. I don't want to feel sorry for him. He gladly did it. What I want to focus on, what did he buy? Tell me what that means. If the law says you can't be with him, uh-uh, uh-uh, hands off. You can't be with him. Not, uh, not right now. He's unclean. If the law requires he can't be with me, then what can he say? What did he buy? What right did he buy? He can say to the law, oh yes, I can. He bought the right 
to always be with me. Now, does that mean he always is? No. Does that mean I never feel guilt? No. All of this is to help me repent. But do I feel the loss of the Spirit like I should, like the law would demand of me? He has the right to be with me. So there is an interesting word that appears in the Book of Mormon and never in the Bible. It is a fascinating concept of his ability to save me. And two interesting people use the word. It only appears twice in the Book of Mormon. And the two people who use it are Alma and Ammon. Fascinating that those two would use the word. Anyone know what the word is? Let's do Alma first, okay? Mosiah chapter 27. Let me show you Alma use the word. Verse 28 and 29, he uses it twice. 28 and 29. Watch for the word. Nevertheless, after waiting through much tribulation, repenting nigh unto death, the Lord in his infinite mercy saw fit to snatch me. It only, that word only appears in Scripture in the Book of Mormon. That God snatched Alma. He saw fit to snatch him. Out of an everlasting burning, and I am born and gone. My soul hath been redeemed from the gall of bitterness and the bonds of iniquity. I was in the darkest abyss, but now... Now, who else was in the darkest abyss? I was in the darkest abyss, and now I behold the marvelous light of God. My soul was racked with eternal torment, but I am snatched. What's the image that comes to mind when he says he was snatched? Why are you smiling? So Jesus is what? Jesus is up there just saying what? Say the word. Come on, Alma. Just repent. Just repent. And the moment he puts himself in a position to be forgiven, what does Jesus do? He just grabs him because he can. He has that right. He bought that right. The second time the word appears is Alma 26. This is where Ammon is rejoicing. So go to Alma 26, and he says, who would have thought? Let's get there. Alma 26, who would have thought? Verse 17, the only other time it appears, who could have supposed that our God would have been so merciful as to have snatched us? from our awful, sinful, and polluted state. Do you see how these two come together? The rights of mercy allow him to do it. And the rights of constant companionship says, I can be with them anytime I want to. Give me the slightest token of repentance and I can snatch you. That's what Jesus bought in answering the ends of the law. We have a Redeemer that owns infinite rights of mercy. If I had infinite property rights on this planet, what would that mean? 
Everything is mine. Everything is mine. If I have infinite mercy rights, then what does that mean? Everyone I want in the kingdom is in the kingdom. And no questions asked. Now, does he save everyone? No, because he says, if you want my rights of mercy, you need to do these five things. And not everyone wants to do the five things. But if you are trying and you fall short again and again and again, does he have the rights to save you? He does. Will he? He will. That's what he bought. Of him, I testify. No one is outside of his rights. No one is outside of his ability to be with you. He bought that. Now, hold on to that. Have faith in that. Because someone is going to try and suggest to you that you're out of his reach. He's going to try and discourage you and lose hope. You are never out of his reach. Never. Of him I testify. Now, over the next couple weeks, we're going to let him set the terms for when he extends that mercy. What are the requirements he puts upon me to say I'm clean? But do you understand his rights? Do you understand what he bought and who he is? And that justice has been met. He answered the ends of the law. Now, just as a precursor, we're going to do one more. I personally have not found anything else in the Book of Mormon that is a payment for sin, a payment to justice. But I have found one more thing he suffered. I truly believe it was voluntarily not required. If he took guilt to infinity, if he took loneliness and emptiness and darkness and alone to infinity, let me throw one more out there. This is where we're going to go next week. Alma chapter 7, verse 11 and 12 might very well be one of the greatest contributions the Book of Mormon makes to our understanding of the atonement. Name six other things that Jesus will take to an infinite level. Turn briefly to Alma chapter 7, verses 11 and 12. Give me my list. Name six things that Jesus will not. I, 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 I just don't believe this is payment for sin. I believe this is something totally different. But there they are. Name the six things that Christ will take to an infinite level. Number one, pain. Now, infinite, again, breadth and depth. How many human pains will he suffer? Every single human pain. How long will he suffer each one of those? Infinity. How many ways has he broken an arm? Every possible way. 
How many human pains has he experienced? What's the next word? Affliction. Name one thing that afflicts someone you love. I'll throw one out. Depression. How many varieties of depression has Jesus experienced? And how deep has he taken each one of them? How depressed has Jesus been? How addicted has Jesus been? Every variety, infinite depth. Does he know rape? Abortion? Does he know same gender attraction? Does he know betrayal? Does he know loneliness? Has he spent an entire eternity being mentally retarded? Every human experience, every one of them, to what depth? A minute? A year? Ten years? How intimately and familiar is he with every single one of those? That is astounding. Now, my question for you to ponder over this week is what did that buy? By becoming infinitely familiar with the whole human experience, every possible human experience to an infinite level, what did he buy with that? That'll be next week's discussion. Do you see what the Book of Mormon contributes to our knowledge of who he is and what he did? Of him I testify, of the simple reality that he has claimed infinite rights of mercy. I testify in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.